Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 46th Cog. Ainsley had attended a lot of parades. In the uppers, spectacles of any kind tended to be popular and well attended. Edith Baird had realized this early in her proctorship and had turned it, as with most things, to her advantage. Ainsley's mother had once remarked that in her youth there had only been the spring parade and the autumn march. Now the uppers saw at least one parade a month. The children's welcome celebrated newborn upper folk. The winter and summer parades celebrated the solstices. The maiden's march was for single upper women while the gents' jaunt showcased the eligible bachelors. But this was wholly different. Torque went first, his golden eyes blazing as he led the rest of them out through the cathedral's ruined frontage. Lucy and Ainsley followed, each with one of the boys close beside her. Then came Gammon, surrounded by the five acolytes, and finally Matron Barrett and Penelope took up the rear. The reasoning. Torque could defend the fugitives who walked right behind him, the keepers wouldn't fire on the acolytes and risk hitting Gammon, and no one would want to incur Jai's wrath by directly attacking the matron or the upper girl she escorted. After all, the Commandant had ordered Rat to storm the cathedral, and look what had happened to him. At least that was the hope. As they approached the street, Ainsley took in what was left of Rat. The Vindicator, or parts of it, were scattered through the cathedral's grounds. One big chunk had crushed the gate, and a second had flattened the keeper bell. Other bits had been hurled out onto the street, or even into nearby buildings. A lot of destruction. A lot of spectacle. And so, of course, the spectators had come. These weren't the usual party-goers. There weren't many of them, maybe a couple dozen along the first few blocks, and most stayed well back from the curb, hiding inside homes or businesses, or watching from around corners or behind trees. They'd been drawn, no doubt, by the noise and carnage, or by a morbid desire to see Torque face down a hundred keepers. Upper folk, here for the show. How many had witnessed Rat tearing away at the ancient cathedral, the upper machine's most hallowed center of worship, for that matter, how many had seen Grabber at the plaza and had heard Gammon order it down to the metal market? Good upper folk. Penelope had called this place Ainsley's home. Then why did she despise it? As their small parade reached the street and started along it, Ainsley spotted Percy speaking urgently to a keeper with epaulets adorning his shoulders. An officer, obviously, though Ainsley didn't know enough about keeper hierarchy to determine his rank. But as they neared the vanguard of the keeper force, this man in charge barked an order. Instantly, scores of pistols were pointed in their direction. Gerard whimpered. Ainsley hugged him and watched Torque for some sign of concern. There wasn't any. They all kept walking. Around them, the crowd increased. Their stares made Ainsley squirm uncomfortably. She glanced at Lucy, expecting to see the same reaction, but the lower girl appeared oblivious, even aloof. Her hand was in Jad's, her head held high. To these people, she was both more than a stranger and less than a person. An animal, as Julia had put it. Yet she looked like a queen. Torque raised one hand, the signal for all of them to stop. Halting in their tracks, Ainsley glanced back at Gammon. The Commandant remained shackled and gagged. His eyes were clearly watering, though whether this was from fear, outrage, or the discomfort of walking barefoot through the streets, she didn't know. Until now, he'd cooperated willingly enough, but this nearness to his men had made Gammon's eyes bulge with effrontery and frustration. Ainsley faced forward again in time to see Torque approach the officer. He moved unconcernedly, neither fearful nor confrontational, with his pipe held at his hip. 
The keeper's guns dogged his every step. It was working, just like he'd said it would. When he came within six feet of the officer, he stopped. The two of them eyed each other. Like the rest, the uniformed man's pistol was pointed directly at Tork's forehead. Tork said, Step aside. Release the commandant. Nope. Do it, or we'll fire. And then I'll blind you with steam, Tork replied calmly. If even a single pistol goes off between here and the market plaza, I'll cripple every keeper along this route. You're bluffing, the officer exclaimed, though his voice faltered. He'd probably heard stories about bullets somehow melting into this criminal's armor, though Ainsley didn't think this man had witnessed it personally. If he had, he wouldn't have bothered with his pistol at all. I don't have to bluff, Tork said. Order your luds to lower their weapons and get out of the way. You've got five seconds. I have my duty, the man yelled. Four. You're a criminal. Three. Surrender, and I promise you'll be treated fairly. Two. Please? One. His pipe hand twitched as if about to rise. No, the officer yelped. Lowering his pistol, he called out, Let them pass. No one fires. The keepers parted, shouldering aside the lower folk who lined the streets. Thanks, Tork said, and their parade truly commenced. Ainsley worried that the keepers might wait until Tork was far enough ahead and then make a grab for the commandant while his back was turned. They didn't. They're too scared, Ainsley muttered to herself. Lucy must have guessed what she was thinking because she replied, Nope, he's just too big. Big, Ainsley glanced at her. Sure he's big, but that by itself won't stop a hundred keepers. Lucy smiled thinly. Not that kind of big, upper lass. As they marched on, the crowds followed. Keepers and civilians alike moved with them, a strange tide of bodies, maintaining their distance and matching their stride. There were no jeers, but no cheers either. Was that because the matron was with them, giving these criminals her implicit blessing? After all, here was the lower's champion walking with the leader of the Jaius Church. That had to be sending a powerful message. They reached the market plaza in mid-afternoon, the sun high in an azure, cloudless sky. There were more keepers here, another hundred at least, though they seemed as unsure as the rest. None drew their weapons. Instead, they filled the plaza, a living barricade, obviously established to cordon off the market lifts. Ainsley spotted Baird. The proctor stood atop the lift platform, surrounded by a dozen guards. Her face remained bandaged, and her arms were crossed as she surveyed the scene. At the plaza's edge, Tork gestured for the troop to stop. Around them, the crowd went silent and expectant. Tork said, Stay here. Watch Gammon. I'll be right back. Ainsley and Lucy nodded. He took to the air, his golden body soaring upward in an easy glide that drew gasps, sighs, and even a smattering of applause from the onlookers. Sailing high over the plaza center, he pointed his pipe at Baird. The keepers all raised their pistols in response. Make a path, he called loudly. Release the matron and the commandant, the proctor replied with the speaker's box. Commandant Gammon is coming to the lowers to answer for his crimes. Matron Barrett isn't my prisoner and can leave whenever she wants. I don't believe you. I don't care. Let us through or I'll make you wish you had. I don't respect empty threats. I don't make them. It's true, a loud, clear voice called from the plaza. Matron Barrett stepped to the forefront of their little parade. She stood there, clearly unshackled and in full possession of herself. Hundreds of eyes fixed on her. Barrett addressed the crowd with the ease of a professional speaker. Even without the benefit of Tork's altitude or the proctor's speaker's box, her words reached nearly everyone. Chai's cathedral lies in ruins because of what Commandant Gammon has done. If not for Tork's courage, my ladies and myself would be dead. 
His motives and his actions are just. Her eyes locked on the line of keepers. Stand aside and let us pass. Atop the platform, the proctor glowered in obvious consternation. The market plaza seemed to be holding its collective breath. Finally, Baird raised her speaker box and announced, The good matron has been deceived. These criminals have no right to take Commandant Gammon anywhere. Tork called back. His actions killed innocent lower folk. I'm claiming the right. Last chance. Make a path. Your arrogant bluster doesn't intimidate me, boy. Tork fired. Ainsley expected to see steam spew from his pipe, but instead a tiny ball of fire emerged, shooting toward the platform. Instantly, the proctor's guards closed ranks around her, forming a living shield. The little fireball struck the platform at their feet, simmering and sputtering like an amber on a hearth. Seeing it, Edith Baird laughed, the sound carrying through the speaker's box. Is that it? she asked mockingly. Tork replied, nope. The ball of fire exploded, but not into flame, into smoke. Black billows, heavy and oily, flooded the platform. Almost immediately, the proctor and her entourage began coughing. Her guards all but scooped Baird up and carried her toward the stairs, their forms lost behind the dark, wafting clouds. Meanwhile, dozens of the keepers in the plaza opened fire on Torque. He didn't move, just hovered there and let the volleys melt into his armor. The acolytes cried out in alarm, but Barrett immediately calmed them. Stand firm, sisters. Keep the commandant where he is. The giants stood firm. The upper folk didn't. Frightened by the gunfire, they scattered, much the way they had after the aborted hanging. This time, however, it was the keepers they were running from. Meanwhile, the shooting continued. Many of the bullets hit their mark and disappeared harmlessly. Others didn't, and around the plaza, window glass shattered in some of the taller buildings, adding to the chaos. Through it all, Torque hovered motionless. Across the way, Baird and her guards reached the bottom of the platform stairs. There they huddled together, unable to do anything but cough and wheeze. Finally, the shooting stopped, leaving the keepers to look helplessly at one another. Torque motioned to Ainsley and Lucy. Their parade started marching again. Not knowing what else to do, the keeper stepped aside, and the upper folk, those who hadn't fled altogether, continued to follow and stare, torn between fear and wonder. To Ainsley, the entire affair had a bizarre, unreal quality to it, almost as if she were moving through a dream. They crossed the plaza in silence, passing directly below Tork, who looked on watchfully. Nearing the stairs, they passed Baird and her entourage, who were still too overcome by smoke inhalation to really notice them. Atop the platform, the smoke had dissipated, carried away by the afternoon's breeze. All that remained was a faint odor of sulfur and burnt grease. Tork joined them there, lighting gracefully down on the platform's edge beside the railing that overlooked the plaza, more or less the same spot that Baird had just vacated. The crowd, thousands strong, with many more returning now that the shooting had stopped, watched him. The proctor and her guards, mostly recovered now, watched too. Tork stood there, waiting for... what? Ainsley wasn't sure. Then it dawned on her. He was waiting for everyone's attention. The 47th Cog Upper Folk! Rand shouted as loudly as he could, but the crowd was very big and very noisy. A moment later, Ainsley appeared at his side. She didn't say anything, but just handed him the gadget that Baird had talked through. He raised it to his lips the way he'd seen the proctor do it. Upper folk, he shouted again. This time his voice blasted across the plaza. Around him everyone winced. So did some of the crowd. Apparently that was too loud. 
Rand took a deep breath and then said in a normal voice, Listen to me. And they did. It was startling. The most reaction Rand Roberts, Bowles Rat, would have earned from these people is contempt. But Rand Roberts wasn't here. Torque was. So they listened. I'm not much of a talker, he said, feeling out of his element. Least of all a public talker. You probably think you can who I am. But I'm not the Torque who's been dancing around the middle market for 20 years pretending to fight keepers. That Torque was a lie told to control the lower folk. He's dead and gone. I'm the real Torque, the one from the early days of the machine. I'm no upper lud in a mask. I am the machine. A part of it as it's a part of me. Which means I owe nothing to your laws. Rand paused, gauging the crowd's reaction. No one booed or threw anything. They were just staring, some with fear and others with fascination. He suddenly kenned that, to some of them, this was just another show. Entertainment. Scarier and more drastic than the usual fare, but nothing that would really impact their lives. They still didn't get it, but they were about to. Rand nodded to Lucy, who wordlessly reached past the giants and grabbed Gammon. At first he refused to be moved, but Lucy was nothing if not persistent. Within moments, despite her smaller size, the shackled commandant realized it was either give in or fall down onto his already broken nose. So he gave in. Lucy dragged the stumbling lud up to the railing beside Rand. At the same time, Matron Barrett advanced and stood at Rand's other shoulder, just as they'd planned. Gammon, still gagged, stared pleadingly down at the proctor, whose own eyes teared from the smoke. Rand said, Last night, Gammon deaded August Pinkerton. Then this morning, he and Proctor Baird tried to hang two innocent lasses, one of them Pinkerton's daughter, for his murder. Then they sent a mechanical monster down to the middle market to kill as many lower folk as possible. And finally, they sent another mechanical creature to rip up your church to Jai. But don't take my word for it. Rand handed the speaking gadget to the matron. Barrett used it far more confidently than he did. Every word Torque has said is true. Jai's house stands in partial ruin because of this man's, she pointed at Gammon, who glared defiantly back at her, hubris and irreverence. One of my sisters is dead, another murder to add to the list of Henry Gammon's crimes. That got a rise. Throughout the plaza, upper folk murmured discontentedly. Apparently, news of atrocities committed in the uppers was enough to earn the attention of even these comfort-addled pillow farts. Rand took back the gadget. Now, Baird and Gammon will say that they've done all of this for the good of the machine, that the population of the lower folk has grown too large. They want to cut down our numbers, kill thousands of us, so that they can be sure we won't one day revolt, come up the drop, and kick you all out of your palaces and fine houses. But all that's dung. They want control, not just over us, the lower folk, but over you too. They don't care who gets hurt. They don't care what laws they break. They want what they want. Well, that ends now. Thing is, Gammon and Baird have made a pretty basic mistake. We lower folk have no interest in you or your lives. You can keep your streets and parks and windows. What we want is perfectly simple. We want our freedom. As of today, the lowers no longer serves the uppers. As of today, you are not welcome in the machine. The middle market is ours. The factories and all their wares are ours. Your upper-born foremen and proprietors will be returned to you unharmed in the lifts. The same goes for any giant's clergy. Once that's been done, once the lowers are strictly for lower folk, I will destroy those lifts and sever the ties between us and you. That launched a wave of outrage. 
Upper folk cursed him, tossing out insults and threats. Drunken on privilege, these folk might be, but they weren't stupid. They knew perfectly well the implications of what Rand was saying. At last, Baird called up to him, her voice scratchy from the smoke, but loud. Looking over the rail, Rand saw that someone had provided her with a second speaker's box. So, you intend to let us starve? A ripple of horror ran through the crowd. Rand replied, I don't intend anything. This is how it's going to be. Your people can have your rooftop. We'll even keep the heat exchangers going so you stay warm, since I ken that doing so costs the lower folk nothing, and probably helps us as much as it helps you. As for starving, well, we've been starving for centuries, and you didn't seem to mind. More jeers, more curses, but through it all, Baird remained calm. Her calmness bothered Rand. Here's how it'll go, he said. I'll leave one lift in working order. Just one. When you're ready, send down someone to bargain for food and other goods. Bargain, someone yelled. We own those goods and the factories. Not anymore. More threats and catcalls. Rand announced, My friends and I are leaving now, and we're taking Gammon with us. He has to answer for what he's done, and he'll do it in the lowers. But the upper folk didn't seem concerned about the Commandant. Their shouts of protest focused more on the embargo they were facing. Rand lowered the speaker's box and said to Ainsley, Call the lift. Everyone going down should go now. I'll stay here and make sure no one comes after you. I don't know how it works, Ainsley replied nervously. I'll help you, child, Matron Barrett said. The two upper lasses went to the lift controls. Baird called from below. Let him speak. Her amplified words rang over the plaza, silencing the crowd. Rand raised the talking gadget once more. Let who speak? Commandant Gammon, the proctor replied. We've heard the accusations you and Matron Barrett have made. Let's hear how he responds. Rand met Baird's eyes and read the challenge there. Lucy said, Don't. Barrett looked up from the lift controls and remarked, It would be just. Rand glanced at Ainsley, who shrugged. Then he fixed his gaze on the Commandant. Do I have to tell you, Rand said, lowering the speaker's box, what'll happen if you order your keepers to attack? The Upper Lord shook his head. Rand told him anyway, I'll cook you like a chunk of boiled meat. Then I'll do the same to your Luds, and we'll just leave in the lifts anyway, got it? Gammon nodded. Rand frowned. He didn't like this. He didn't know why he didn't like it, but he definitely didn't. Then he thought, what would Torque do? A pointless question now, he supposed. Torque would do whatever it was he himself decided to do. Rand reached around and loosened the knot in the Commandant's sock gag, letting it fall away. Gammon instantly spit out the other one, sputtering as it tumbled to the platform floor. Then he took a deep, cleansing breath and looked out over the plaza. Rand, alarm bells ringing in his head, held the speaking gadget to the Commandant's lips. There's no denying what I've done, Gammon told the silent crowd. But this criminal, for all his power, is mistaken on one point. He isn't the machine. Then he grinned savagely at Rand and added, I am. Wyvern, kill everyone on the lift platform. Something erupted up out of the drop. Whatever it was, it was big, very big. Rand got a fleeting impression of width and girth as the something moved with dizzying speed through his peripheral vision and disappeared into the glare of the afternoon sun. Then Ainsley screamed and Lucy yelled and within moments the entire plaza rippled with cries of alarm. A shadow cut across the wide, crowded expanse, its shape like nothing Rand had ever seen. This was no grabber and certainly no rat. This had wings. This flew. Gammon started to laugh. Then, still bound hands and feet, the Commandant threw himself over the railing. 
Before Rain could stop him, he tumbled the dozen feet to the plaza floor. It seemed like a crazy move. At best, he'd break a bone. At worst, he'd snap his neck. But Gammon had picked his landing spot well. He crashed down atop an unsuspecting keeper, sending them both sprawling, bruised, but not seriously hurt. Meanwhile, the shadow made a wide turn and came soaring back toward the lift platform. Toward them. The last Vindicator. Rand heard a chime. The lift cart arrived. Whirling around, he called to the others, Get in the lift, all of you. What's happening? Penelope Crowley screamed. What is that thing? Matron Barrett took her hand, no doubt meaning to drag her to the lift. The acolytes were already there, some crying, others praying. Ainsley scooped up Gerard and ran after them. Only Lucy hesitated, hand in hand with Jad, looking beseechingly at Rand. Come with us. Go, he pleaded. But it was already too late. The something, Gammon had called it Wyvern, whatever that meant, reached the platform. Rand glanced over his shoulder in time to see a metal juggernaut descending on them. It had a horned, triangular head atop a stretched, tapered neck, with a body of hard iron scales, four legs with five-fingered talons, a flat-bladed tail, and huge steel wings. These beat the air so hard that upper folk in the plaza were literally being knocked off their feet by the wake of its passage. Then Rand saw its mouth was open. There were teeth, lots of them, but that wasn't the terrible part. The terrible part was the fire. A column of flame as wide as his entire body blasted the platform. Rand threw himself at Lucy and Jad, scooping them up and flying them to the relative safety of the open lift. Ainsley and Gerard were already there. So were the Acolytes. But Barrett and Penelope were not. The matron still stood near the lift controls, having refused to abandon the terrified Crowley lass. Penny! Ainsley cried. As Wyvern's fire scoured the lift control platform, Rand hurtled himself toward the two upper lasses. But for all his speed, he could tell he wouldn't be fast enough. Penelope, however, was. She threw herself at the matron and, as the flames consumed the panel, pushed the older lass clear, knocking her back several feet and sending her crashing into the platform floor. Then the fire took Penelope. She didn't scream. Her burning body twisted grotesquely, but she made no sound. Rand tried to use his steam to snuff out the flames, but it just kept burning. Oil fire. Penelope tumbled to the floor, her limbs contorted, her dress melting into her skin, and died. Rand stood over her, numb with shock, while behind him, Ainsley and Gerard wailed piteously. Behind them, crowded into the back of the lift, the acolytes clutched at each other in terror. Rand thought, I failed again. Then he shook himself and looked down at Barrett, who was staring at Penelope's corpse in obvious shock. Join the others, he told her. Take the lift. I'll keep it busy. The matron numbly nodded. Rand launched skyward. The Vindicator circled for another pass. Throughout the plaza, upper folk were once again screaming and running, all except Baird's people who tended to gammon, removing his shackles. The Commandant, for his part, laughed and pointed skyward, as if his trick had been a wonderful joke. Rand pushed down a burning rush of hatred. Torque didn't hate. Torque never hated. Then he went after Wyvern. With a shrill cry and a flap of its enormous wings, the Vindicator banked toward him. Rand made directly for it, brandishing his pipe. His plan was to go straight down its gullet, as he had with Grabber. Wyvern's mouth opened, and the fire came out. Rand had, of course, expected this. So he lowered his head and shot right into the flames, counting on his armor to protect him and his momentum to carry him through. It didn't. The heat hit him like a wall, sending him spinning through the air. For several nauseating seconds, the sky and ground tumbled over each other in a dizzying dance. Then he struck the now empty plaza, bouncing and skittering across its smooth metal surface. 
With tremendous effort, he planted his pipe deep in the iron, hanging on with both hands as it anchored him, grinding noisily along, spending his inertia. Finally, he stopped, his vision blurred and his head reeling. He took a breath, then another. Still alive. He was almost surprised. Slowly, stiffly, he staggered to his feet. The firestorm had blasted him a hundred yards from the lift platform. At the moment, he couldn't see the Vindicator. It was lost, as before, in the glare of the sun. But he spotted Baird and Gammon. They stood near the platform steps, surrounded by green-uniformed guards. Gammon had resumed command. All were looking his way, but only the Commandant was smiling. The rest of the plaza was all but deserted. The upper folk and most of the keepers had fled. Wyvern, it seemed, was scarier than either Rat or Grabber had been. Scarier even than Torque. From a considerable distance, someone screamed, Rand! He turned and saw Ainsley. She stood at the platform railing. Even from this distance, he could tell she was scared. Scared for him. Her hand reached out desperately, as if somehow able to magically cross the intervening distance. She and the others were supposed to have been on their way down to the middle market by now. Had the lift failed? Or had she seen him get slammed by the Vindicator and rushed out to make sure he was all right? Either way, it had been a mistake. A bad one. Lucy appeared at the railing as well. She was trying to drag Ainsley away, presumably back to the lift car. Then an enormous metal shape fell on them from high above, all wings and claws. Nowhere one moment, and then everywhere the next. Before Rand could react, Lucy crashed to the floor, and Ainsley was snatched up by one of Wyvern's huge talons. With a cry, it bore the upper lass aloft, carrying her high into the open sky above the machine. Rand launched. No direct assault this time, he decided. Instead, he'd come at the Vindicator from an oblique angle, hit its flank. With luck, it would drop Ainsley. Then with a bit more luck, Rand could catch the falling upper lass and get her clear, maybe by depositing her on one of the nearby rooftops. Unfortunately, this plan went the same way as most of his others. Rand struck Wyvern's scaly side just below one wing, exactly where he wanted to. The monster roared in outrage, reflexively snapping its jaws at its gilded tormentor. At the same moment, its claw opened, dropping Ainsley, who screamed in alarm. Rand turned downward, meaning to catch the falling upper lass before the drop, which lay directly below them both, swallowed her up. But then Wyvern managed to clamp its teeth around one of his ankles, snatching him out of mid-flight. For a split second, Rand's gaze met Ainsley's. Her eyes were wide and green and terrified as she fell down and down, past the upper's tall buildings, past the lift platform, and toward the black maw of the drop. He twisted and kicked at Wyvern's metal mouth, but it had clamped down hard, meaning to bite his foot clean off. And it would have, if Torque's armor weren't preventing it. Desperately, Rand hammered its metal snout with his pipe over and over, denting, but not penetrating it. The Vindicator's eyes blazed ferociously, but its grip never slackened. You're Torque. Stop thinking like Rand Roberts. Be Torque. The words bounced through Rand's mind, unbidden. Was no name here? Outside the machine? Talking to him? Somehow it didn't feel like no name. But inside his head, yet another door opened. Rand spun, whipping his body around 360 degrees, feeling his armored ankle rotate between Wyvern's teeth. The Vindicator seemed taken aback by the ploy, biting down harder in response. But Rand spun again and again, faster and faster. As before, sky and ground blurred, except this time there was no dizziness, no nausea. This time, Torque had control. He felt his ankle get warm, then hot. The teeth around it, each a nine-inch blade of razor-sharp steel, softened and began to melt. A sound escaped the monster, a shrill hiss emerging from between its closed jaws. Pain? Surprise. Rand wasn't sure, but he took advantage of its momentary weakness. 
Stopping his rotation abruptly, he rammed the heel of his free foot into the creature's mouth with all the force he could muster. The softened teeth bent, and his trapped ankle came free. But Rand didn't fly off. Instead, he went down and then straight up, delivering a pipe blow beneath Wyvern's triangular head that knocked the creature out of its wing-flapping hover. With a shriek, it tumbled away, tried to recover, dropped, and then slammed hard onto the floor of the plaza. There it lay, twitching. Frantically, Rand looked for Ainsley, but she was already gone, tumbling through the darkness of the drop. At that instant, he heard a cry. A dozen keepers, Baird's entire entourage, were charging up the steps onto the lift platform. And standing just outside the open lift, guarding the others, stood Lucy. She was brandishing something, a length of blackened scrap iron taken from the lift control panel, perhaps. Holding it menacingly, she faced the approaching keepers with much more courage than hope. Rand dove toward the platform. Not wasting a second, he raised his pipe and layered the floor with enough grease to send the dozen uniformed men slipping and crashing. Then, while they struggled in the slick black liquid, he fired off another smoke pellet, enveloping the keepers in choking plumes before they could even begin to find their feet. Meanwhile, Rand flew past them and straight at Lucy, scooping the lower lass up and depositing her at the lift car's open threshold. No more fighting, he exclaimed. Head down. Now. Lucy visibly colored. She didn't like taking orders. It's broke. It won't run. Rand regarded the ruined control panel, its innards baked and melted by Wyvern's fire. So he pressed his palm against the lift car's metal side and spoke the fixing command. The opening mine doors had showed him how it worked. The machine was, in its way, a living thing, capable of knowing when some part of it, whether metal or flesh, was broken. But in the earliest days, all the scientists had needed to do was touch the damaged gadget, and the machine would repair it calling upon a level of mech far beyond anything the upper folk engineers ever imagined. Lucy's healing was the same, but different. For fixing flesh, a sample of the sick or injured person's blood was needed, from which the machine determined what healthy looked like for that person and returned them to that state. Root, interestingly enough, had nothing to do with it. Rand supposed at some point he'd have to explain that to Lucy. He wasn't looking forward to it. But in both cases, the same command word was used. So Rand used it now. Reboot, he said. He half expected to watch the burnt control panel miraculously become unburnt. It didn't. Instead, the lift car rumbled to life without it. Lucy's eyes widened in astonishment. Behind her, Barrett and the acolytes made hand gestures that Rand didn't recognize. It'll run now, he told them. Not surprisingly, Lucy recovered first. Solid. Now, go get Ainsley. I'm not losing anybody else I care about. Rand couldn't have agreed more. He stepped out and let the lift doors close. As the car began to descend, Lucy watched him through the glass, a brave smile on her face. He took once more to the air, overflying the crippled and gasping soldiers before hurtling himself over the lip of the drop. Two miles. Two miles to the bottom. By now, Ainsley had to be more than halfway there. That meant to catch her, Rand would have to do more than fall. He'd have to fly. The 48th Cog Ainsley kept screaming as the rectangle of sky receded above her. Smaller and smaller it became, until what started out looking like a grim skylight shrunk to a window, then a peephole, then a pinhole, then nothing. The drop enclosed her in darkness. Still she screamed as the air rushed past her, whipping her hair into a frenzied halo. Her heart hammered so furiously that she couldn't imagine why it didn't simply burst from terror. Abruptly, she sensed light, 
only peripherally at first, as she didn't quite seem able to turn her head. The force of the wind was too strong. Nevertheless, she knew what it was. The middle. Moments later, the walls on every side of her cut sharply away to the limits of the machine. For scant seconds, factories and tall gearboxes flashed through her awareness. So did the rows and shops of the market itself, many of them crushed or toppled. Grabber lay in a mountainous heap near the market center, broken and lifeless. Lower folks surrounded it, working with whatever tools they had to rip off valuable pieces of metal. In the lowers, nothing got wasted. Then all of it was gone, the darkness returned, and Ainsley realized she'd stopped screaming. Oddly, her terror had given way to a bitter regret. Now her little brother would be completely alone. Surely Lucy would look after him, but that was cold comfort. In a few more moments, she'd join her parents in the life that came next. That thought was scary, yes, but mostly she just felt sad. Dying, as it turned out, was more about grieving your unlived days than panicking over the mystery of death itself. Ainsley closed her eyes and waited. I'm sorry, she said, not even sure who she was talking to. Don't be. Her eyes snapped open. But no, they were still closed. Instead, it seemed as if she'd opened another pair of eyes, her inside eyes, the ones she looked through when she dreamed. Gazing up, she saw the ceiling of her bedroom back in her father's house. But that made no sense. She was falling down the drop. Wasn't she? Yeah, the same voice said. You're still falling. But time's malleable, and I'm stretching this second out a bit longer than most. Given the circumstances, I figured now might be our only chance to talk. Sitting at her bedside was a boy. No more than Jad's age, but bigger, heavier, and thicker in the neck and chest. Like Jad, he wore raggedy clothes cut from worn burlap. A lower boy, a ludling. Who are you? she asked. He smiled and replied in a tone that belied his youth. That's complicated. Let's just say I'm one of your allies, and we both know it's a pretty short list. So given that, I was hoping you and I could talk for a minute, relatively speaking, of course. Why are we in my bedroom? The boy looked around curiously. Are we? It's nice. But I didn't pick the venue. You did. Apparently, this is where you feel safe. When I did this to Rand, he picked our flop down in the bowels. Interesting. I don't understand. I don't blame you. But things will get clearer. Or maybe they won't. People sometimes go their whole lives not kenning things that should be perfectly clear. Rand's a good example of that. Not Lucy, though. She always sees what's right in front of her. But you, you're somewhere in the middle. Which in a way makes you the most interesting. Huh? Never mind. I just figured I'd take this opportunity to say hello and offer you a word of advice. Advice? The child nodded. You want to give me advice while I'm falling to my death? Well, when you say it like that, it sounds stupid. This is the weirdest conversation I've ever had. I hear that a lot. Ainsley sighed, settling herself deeper into the pillow. Dream or not, she did feel safe. Fine. What's the advice? Before you fall in love, Ainsley, you should probably figure out who it is you're in love with. Then you really ought to make it a point to tell him. Ainsley blinked. What? What are you talking about? Oh, I think you know. And she supposed she did. He's with Lucy, she said, only a little regretfully. Sure. So what? Even if I could steal him from her, I wouldn't. She's my friend. Good for you. But you should tell him anyway. Why? Because when you tell someone you love them, it's a way of proving to them that they're not alone. 
and there's nothing worse than being alone. Trust me on that. Who are you? she asked again. I told you it's complicated. Well, what should I call you? He shrugged. Whatever you want, she considered. Then I'll call you no name. He laughed, a child's giggle of amusement and delight. Really? How about that? But Ainsley didn't laugh. Suddenly this whole bizarre encounter, the last one of her life, seemed very serious. Thanks for the advice, I guess. My pleasure. It's nice to meet you, Ainsley. I'm hoping we'll be good friends. I doubt it. The boy looked hurt. Why not? No name. I'm about to die. Oh, that, he replied, making a dismissive gesture. I can't see the future, so why are you so sure you can? I'm falling down the drop, she exclaimed, her eyes filling with tears. So ending up dead sounds like a pretty good bet, doesn't it? When No Name leaned close, it struck Ainsley that he looked vaguely familiar. Ordinarily, yeah, but in this case, I think I'll put my coin on Torque. Ainsley opened her real eyes. The drop was back, the darkness, the falling. A foul stench filled her nostrils, getting closer. Excrement, sewage, garbage. She was going to die in that filth. Abruptly, light from above flooded her vision, bright and golden and unlike anything she had ever seen before. For an instant, she thought it was Jai herself, maybe the goddess that Ainsley barely believed in had come to collect her soul. But then a gilded figure took shape in the glare. Torque was coming for her, his entire body shining like a beacon. With a desperate cry, Ainsley reached up toward him. He was gaining, so much so that she could now see his shining golden eyes. But fast as he was, he remained a good ways off, and the bottom of this awful shaft had to be close. His light surrounded her, illuminating the walls, brighter than sunshine. His gilded fingers extended toward her. Behind his armor, Ainsley read the hard set of his jaw and the ferocious determination he had brought to the task of catching her before she perished. And suddenly, she sensed the approaching floor. She wasn't sure how. Perhaps some slight change in the quality of the light? But Ainsley knew that these were the last moments of her life. So much undone. So much unsaid. Mother, she thought, not really knowing why. Then Torque caught her wrist and pulled. Ainsley was yanked upward so savagely that pain racked her from toes to collarbone. An instant later, she felt the smooth golden muscle of his arm closing around her. Even so, they were still falling, and now that she was upright, she could see the floor. Huge and gray and terrifyingly close. Steam exploded from Torque's pipe. A lot of steam, a ton of steam, enough for ten cartridges, twenty, a hundred, maybe more. It blasted the bottom of the drop, boiling the refuse and rats in a deafening explosive hiss. Great plumes rose on all sides of them, reaching from wall to wall, encircling and enveloping them until Ainsley's hair and clothes were soaked with hot moisture. But their descent slowed. More steam, barrels of it. It fought their inertia, which hammered at them, slamming them downward, until Ainsley had to clamp her mouth shut to stifle a scream. Then, miraculously, the two of them stopped in midair. Torque's body shuddered against hers, and Ainsley grasped, kenned, the level of effort that he'd spent in reaching her. Exhaustion shone on his face despite the mask. Yet he somehow kept them both in place, hovering six feet from the floor, his body ramrod straight and his golden eyes shining. Almost without thinking, she threw her arms around his thick neck and kissed him. The action shocked them both. His lips, though layered in a thin veneer of gold, were warm and soft. And, a little to her surprise, he returned the kiss, brief but oh so powerful. Then, when they parted, she whispered something in his ear. 
He didn't respond right away. As the moments ticked by, Ainsley was afraid he wouldn't. But then he did. I can, he said. Then, with Ainsley cradled in his arms, he headed back up toward the distant sky. Rand does battle with the last Vindicator and discovers an astonishing truth in the next episode of Torque by Ty Drago. If you just can't stand the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening.